Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we are doing it today. We're finally doing it. We're kicking off part two, part two of our anti-essentialism series that you all have known and loved so dearly, as so many of you tell me, over the years. Uh, We did that back in 2017, back in the, the salad days of DPS, if you will. Uh, cut our teeth on some strong, you know, pro-socialist, uh, anti-essentialism. I hate to say, I say, I hate to say anti-essentialism because it's like, what are you for? What are you for? You're anti-essentialism. Well, what is essentialism? We're going to break all that down today. We're going to talk about what essentialist, what an essentialist view of society is, in particular in the biomedical sciences. And we're going to talk about what we actually are for, because with Bernie Sanders surging in the polls, whether he wins, lose, or it's a draw, uh, there's no doubt that you know, the kinds of politics that lend itself to an anti-essentialist framework are surging as well. So today's uh, episode is going to be a really excellent one. It's a really great way to start off uh, part two of this anti-essentialism series. Joining me on the show today on the episode is Joanna West. She is a doctoral fellow and lecturer at Princeton. She's affiliated with the Politics Department and Gender and Sexuality Studies program. Former student of uh, Adolph Reed Jr., if you don't mind me saying, Joanna, how you doing? Thanks for coming to the program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks, Adam. I'm really, I'm really glad to be a part of this anti-essentialism series part two, as you're calling it. I was a big fan of the first one. You know, you had people like Adolph on, and I think Cedric was a guest too. Cedric Johnson for the uninitiated out there. And I, I mentioned Adolph not because you yourself don't have your own proud academic foundations to stand on on your own we're all sort of like children of our advisors aren't we it's like you're stuck in this like uh childlike state forever as an academic until they die right not to say that we want them to die long live adolf but but uh <laughs> but you know how that is uh but but I, I mentioned the fact that you were one of Adolf's students because i think it's really great and it's maybe highly symbolic but important that there's another generation of scholars and activists who are coming up Thinking about these, you know, highly complicated intellectual questions, but in a very grounded political sort of way, and that, and that these ideas aren't going to sort of die off with that '60s, '70s generation of like, you know, class struggle, trade union militant style socialist academics. So let's get into your piece. You have a piece that came out on Nonsite, nonsite.org. That piece was called "The Racial Disparity Politics of Biomedical Research." disaggregating categories into new essentialisms. Now, for those of you who don't study (laughs) the philosophy of science, uh, these types of complicated questions, give us the elevator speech. You're at an academic conference, some bigwig schmuck who's had a little bit too much scotch at the after party (laughs) steps into the elevator with you. And they say, ah, Joanna, what is it that you do? Break down uh, your, your research interests and why you think it's important. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I know I did no service to myself by giving this title every buzzword in the book. Um, but but yeah, so my research agenda is kind of broadly centers around questions of, to put it most simply, uh, identity and inequality. And what that looks like is pieces like this one for non-site, 
um, that peer into the sort of social categories through which we come to understand everything from biomedical to political cultural phenomena. And so while this piece um, is obviously more concerned with questions of race and ethnicity, a little bit of gender at the margins, um, the broader research program looks at essentialisms um, as created by, you know, sorts of disparity industry outfits and, and liberal nonprofits, um, state academic research ventures and biotechnology firms, all these sorts of actors and organizations that come together um, to kind of construct these social categories um, that do have a sort of uh, uh, essence to them um, that I think our job is to pry apart and understand what kind of violence to understanding is, is uh, at the root uh, of those constructions. Very well put. We're going to dive into that, not only the kind of more niche arguments in the subfield that you represent, but also the broader political imports. So I don't want anybody to think that we're going to get we're, we're going to we're going to lose them throughout the course of this interview with jargon. Uh, we're going to bring it home throughout, uh, but we're also going to go deep into the actual uh, debates in your subfield because I know that my audience can handle both. We like to do both at the same time. <laughs> so let's dive into the actual argument of the piece. You open up uh, this, this, by the way, to the audience, this is on nonsite.org. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. So if people want to read it, maybe read along, uh, use this as a, a way of an entry point into getting into the piece, maybe to, to sort of understand those debates a little bit better. Once you finally read it, go for it. We encourage that. So you open up your piece talking about a debate made by economist and public policy advocate Rhonda Vonche Sharp. She intervenes in that debate where she argues that the heterogeneous social category of women of color as a biomedical research classification is insufficient. Tell us why she why she wanted to sort of pry open that concept of women of color and, and where she goes from there. You, you seem to think that it was an, an unhelpful improvement. That seems to be a theme that runs throughout the course of, of your, your article here. We're trying to improve upon these notions, but we end up doubling down on the problems that they represent. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's kind of square on, on what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, so the thing that I was, I was first so shocked at coming across the Sharp essay is that she's taking uh, as a subject of critique this, this idea of women of color as something that's kind of falsely aggregating all sorts of populations under this category in a way that I think that, you know, I and you and a lot of your audience might agree does a lot of work for misunderstanding. But what she does is she goes from that and says that what we should really be doing is parsing out all sorts of other distinct racialized social categories and running those through the sorts of biomedical studies and, and other sorts of social science studies in ways that then reproduce new sorts of aggregates that we know uh, to be caning the diversity of populations most importantly, um, class-skewed ones. So this is um, an agenda that she's promoting um, where we want to carve up all of these new social distinctions on the basis of something like race and ethnicity uh, and totally aligning the sort of class dynamics, the circumstances of geography, and all sorts of other things that might be getting kind of wrapped up back in these sort of naturalized categories. Right. There's a lot to unpack here. So in 1977, there was an amendment of some kind or around that time, wherein this social category of women of color was fought for, and I, and I suppose won as a biomedical research classification. So you can see how, you know, anybody who studies the kind of history and philosophy of science will know 
that, you know, various classifications or social constructions, they result from the kind of political movements and impulses and the hegemonic kind of constructions of those times. And of course, 1977 was a moment wherein following the 60s civil rights era, science is a little slower. You know, science is about a decade behind at least to latch on and to catch on to some of the, you know, some of the desires and demands that are being made in broader society. So in the late 70s, you have this kind of um, these reforms in biomedical research classification to talk about women of color. There's a lot there. You're arguing that we shouldn't just make those classifications and categories more quote intersectional we should undermine and reinvestigate the kind of what those classifications are said to accomplish and what their limitations are there's a lot there break it down for myself and my lay audience my largely lay audience what are these biomedical research classifications and why are they so important so i think one one way to sort of get at an understanding of what's going on here is to look back at the history Um, a little bit closer of how we even came to get these sort of social categories imported into the realm of biomedicine. Um, And what's really fascinating is that that's a political story. It's one where in the 70s and the 80s, you started to see these well-intentioned identity-based advocacy coalitions forming. These were kinds of tacit, loose coalitions of groups such as breast cancer advocates or AIDS activists and they eventually found allies in professional medical associations and then all the way up to formations like the Congressional Black Caucus, who got then the attention of uh, federal bureaucrats in organizations like the Department of Health and Human Services in ways that committed anyone doing research with federal grants to diversifying their subject populations. Um, and these were, you know, there, there is an argument that these subject populations lacked a sort of diversity in ways that was problematic for conducting research prior to this moment. For example, a lot of hormone therapy for women, you know, advances were made on that front, particularly through these processes and through these reforms within the federal funding and then the production of biomedical research. But what flows from that too then is a sort of vulgar, institutionally incentivized structures that mandate the collection of all sorts of kind of racially, ethnically, gender and sexuality coded data for their own sake. Right. And yeah. in, in such a way, yeah, that, that um, you know, if you start looking for something, you're going to find it and you're going to then also start aligning the sort of class differences that I was mentioning earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it brings, brings to mind one of my favorite Nietzsche quotes. I don't have a lot of favorite Nietzsche quotes. I'm agnostic about Nietzsche as, the, as a man, as a human, as a philosopher, all of the above. So wherever you stand on Nietzsche, don't come at me, bro. Don't and and I, I use the word bro advisedly there. You know what I mean, John? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But my favorite Nietzsche quote is something to the effect of like, is it any surprise that when you hide something behind a rock and then you later you know walk by it and, and rediscover it behind the rock is is that is that like a, a, a discovery, right? Or you sort of say I, I butchered this shit out of that, but right. It's the the idea is like if you if you go looking for something, you're going to find it. And, and that's really the kind of wonderment of, you know, medical discovery and, and medical fact in a lot of ways. So like sort of interrogating where these medical facts and discoveries and claims come from are, are really – it's a really important thing that I would imagine a lot of people in my audience don't really think a whole lot about. We take these classifications as it's, it's science, you know? What are you gonna, it's science. You can't argue with science, right? But uh, at the same time, we certainly don't want to be anti-science. We don't want to just, you know, bend the stick too far in the other direction and – 
and pull the kind of um, you know postmodern style kind of uh, uh, you know abolition of scientific knowledge and kind of make this anarchist move. I digress. There's a lot going on here. Give us a concrete example as to how some of these classifications are used. I presume then that if you're trying to get some kind of hormone therapy or drug on the market, like say with the FDA in the United States, that you would use this kind of classificatory structure to justify the claims that you're making about a product. Is that right? Certainly, yeah. And I think one of the most kind of illuminating examples of what can go horribly wrong with this framework comes from this account that's kind of been popularized by this public health scholar called Jonathan Kahn um, in his writings on this racially targeted heart medication called Bidil. Some, some of your audience may, may have heard of this drug before. And the story of Bidil is one of the development of a medically base, baseless race-targeted medication that was produced through these channels of biomedical research and then really insidiously the profit motive. So you have this drug that was previously, you know, used for populations, uh, just a general population. And when its patent ran out, the owners of Bidil uh, were able to get a new patent through the FDA and the National Institutes of Health through these new studies that took a race-targeted approach and then were able to market this thing uh, specifically to a black population despite it's the whole impetus for generating studies and generating results that were rather specious in of themselves, because we know at this point in scientific history and understanding that there are not genetic differences between the races, particularly uh, down to the level of sort of heart function. Like this is a total construction. It's a total. Well, we know, um, we know uh, some, some of these biomedical types don't. Uh, neither does. You know who else doesn't? Richard fucking Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Spencer well, and his alt-right, you know, neo-Nazi racist goons, you know, uh, have have similar beliefs about, you know, genetic determinism and uh, biomedical differences between the races. But I digress. Yeah. No, I think it's a really apt point to make that this is a logic of racialization that is much more at home with the revanchist alt-right and white supremacist crowd among us. And I know that sounds a little bit hyperbolic, and it's not, you know, the normally the first line of critique that I want to advance against this. But there are all sorts of, you know, we, we hear about the, the rise of race realists and race targeted medications, you know, seems to fit in their worldview a bit more than it does in, in a more cosmopolitan one. Yeah, to, to be more, you know, uh, academic and quote dialectical about it, you'd argue that it's, it's the uh, different sides of the same coin. Right. Not not to say that, you know, woke heart medication is somehow, you know, <laughs> synonymous with race realism and, and the horrors of neo-Nazism and, and Richard Spencer. But uh, but to the same side of their the contradictory, you know, a flip side of the same coin, which is what you're trying to sort of reveal here. And, and there are other paths that we can take. We, we don't have to go this route. And you argue, you know, that that there's there's capital and power and institutional dominance that runs through. The, the the hyper classificatory gold rush, if you will. And I, I love that woke heart medication. I just wrote that <laughs> in my notes. It's woke. It's woke as fuck. Heart medication, people. What? Yeah, there, there's a really interesting thing. Well, what is it? What is it about uh, African-Americans in, in the United States where they're said to, to have higher incidence of heart disease? Because I think that really cuts through this kind of racial disparity argument. And it gets to the root of why racial disparity arguments miss the the real root causes of of things like <laughs> predictable 
patterns of heart disease. What do you have there? I mean, this is an interesting way to kind of move forward. Totally, totally. Well, I think that kind of what, what you're homing in on here is that part of producing this sort of social or scientific knowledge to begin with, is it operates on a sort of framework where you take something like race and you take it totally separated out from class. And then you do, you do kind of a double misunderstanding here by taking class to mean its own sort of tiny little constructed variable, something like socioeconomic or, you know, like an income uh, level of measurement, uh, one, you know, which the Marxists among us um, would, would rightly kind of castigate for not taking in the diversity of things that, that we think of when we think of class dynamics and, and about someone's position in, in, in a relation to production. Um, and so what, you know, what we see there too is sorts of racial disparity studies that have been shown by scientists to confound the sort of race or the sort of class dynamics rather that get elided, that get hidden when you take uh, too fine uh, of a distinction between race and class in your study. And kind of related to that, you know, I, I have a friend who's a cellular and molecular biologist who just sends me all the time these new studies that show when you, you know, they, these researchers start from the assumption that a racial disparity exists. And then when they study uh, these, you know, different racialized populations being funneled through the same universal healthcare program, for instance, something like the VA, that all sorts of disparity categories disappear, or measurements rather. And so what really um, is being captured in that study of race is a class dynamic. And that class dynamic is oftentimes a lack of access or, you know, availability of free or affordable health care. And that's the whole story. Right. Healthcare, adequate diet, all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it's given the fact, I mean, people will say, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you suggesting that African-Americans in this country don't suffer from, you know, food deserts and lack of adequate nutrition? And then, of course, healthcare and all the rest of it. What is this anti-disparitarian argument? You know, is it trying to, you know, ignore reality, right? Are, are, are you perhaps therefore, you know, perpetuating a certain kind of like racist narrative? What do you argue? I mean, what's your, what's your uh, rebuttal to that? I, I really want to dive into this kind of disparity argument in, the, in your anti-disparitarian approach. I think it's, it's confusing for a lot of people. They want, they want their, their knowledge and their information, their understanding of the world sort of boxed up into neat little categories. And when you threaten those categories, they get their back up really quickly and assume that you therefore don't care about you know, the plight of the oppressed and disenfranchised in this country. So how do you approach that argument? Certainly, certainly. Um, and, you know, the, the pointing out the fact that universal public goods programs are a solution to these sorts of measurements um, and conditions of inequality, I think, is the first place to go. It's where I always go first to say that not only are there class dynamics that you're not taking into account when you take this sort of disparitarian lens, you can't find your way out of them. So if you take the approach to closing for instance, the gaps in maternal and infant mortality in the U.S., which skew along race lines. If your goal is one to close that gap, what you're going to end up with, even in a universe when you're, if you're able to uh, accomplish that goal, and that's another question of whether or not you're going to be able to accomplish that goal if you can't take into account the sort of class dynamics. But holding that to the side, if you focus and you succeed on closing that gap, 
what you're going to end up with is a system that is more internally egalitarian along one particular measurement of what egalitarian means, the disparitarian one. Right. And you're going to have uh, continue to have you know, a society that is characterized by uh, inequalities in the distribution and access to healthcare. And that's where the comparative approach comes in. So you're going you're gonna to take that closed gap situation and you're going to compare it to Scandinavian countries, for example, with their beautiful, wonderful social democratic institutions that we all long for here in the United States. And you're going to see persistent inequalities. And so that's the sort of thing that the disparitarian lens can never get you to even kind of comprehend, let alone resolve through some sort of you know, political action. So we're going to return to this disparity approach and anti-disparitarian, anti-essentialist approach here uh, towards the second half. Let's get back into the sort of philosophy of science bit here. There are many roads not taken because I mentioned like I believe that one of the the sort of reforms that were set out in the biomedical resource classificatory you know, apparatus was around uh, – it was argued for at least in 1977. You lay out in the beginning of your piece. 1977, like I said, was a moment following the civil rights movement wherein, you know, uh, some of our haughty institutions were slow in catching up and they were, they were trying to, you know, people were trying to bring them, uh, bring to bear some of these new reforms and movements and into these institutions, long story short. But there was, there were, there were, there was another sort of stream of thought that was happening at that very time in the world of sort of philosophy of science. Who, who was Richard Lewontin? Who you write his classic 1972 study, The Apportionment of Human Diversity Exposed the Fallacy of Race Reductionism, by demonstrating, and this is really important here, Lewontin demonstrated that the genetic diversity within a particular racial aggregation was more significant than the genetic differences among the reified sociopolitical racial types. Now, let me de-academicize <laughs> that. Lewontin discovered that the the genetic differences within racial, ethnic, what, what have you groups was more significant than the difference between these categories as aggregates. I mean, that right there uh, should tell you that in, in our genetic future, the, the future facing world of genetics and genomes, which also has its own pitfalls, mind you, but I digress. These, these classifications are bunk. And at the same time, people are arguing for more classifications. Talk about that road not taken. Sure, sure. So the, the Lewontin, as we're calling him, his paper, as you point out, was so influential and so important because it's, it, it exposes the total fallacy that there is something that we can call a biological race, right? Or a biological ethnicity. These are social and political categories that have been used to justify hierarchies, particularly in labor relations, but then kind of proliferate out to, to the rest of society and in, in ways that um, kind of characterize, you know, conditions of inequality in the Jim Crow South, for instance, in U.S. history or in apartheid states um, more generally. And what, yeah, what the Lewontin paper um, is really important for doing is exposing that that is a fallacy. Um, and what flows from that is new considerations of um, how different populations are impacted by their social and environmental terrains in ways that it makes no sense to kind of start from the assumption um, that they do have some sort of biological essence to them that should direct the way that we understand inequalities um, to be generated and then 
thus to be reckoned with. So, I mean, I think what, you know, Lewontin and some of his other uh, co-authors and, and members of this kind of radical scientist collective at the time that consisted of zoologists, geneticists, neuropsychologists, I want to note their, their credentials to say that these were scientists and they were scientists publishing um, in the big papers hey, look, of the field, I, some, right? of my, some of my best <laughs> friends are scientists. Okay, I'm not saying you know. I'm not, I'm not saying. Hey, hey, I'm not saying they're all. You know, you just pulled that move. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, well, so I do. I pull it. I pull it a little bit to say that you know I have scientific friends, which is true. I have friends in the sciences. Yeah. Um, many great friends in the sciences, but um, but look, also I'm no anti-scientist say- bigot. Okay, is what I'm saying. All right. <laughs> exactly. I don't discriminate against scientists. <laughs> Um, to be clear, but I also mentioned their credentials all to, to state kind of back to a, a frame that you pitched at the start of this interview, which is that, you know, they're really in the middle of the kind of vulgar essentializing conduction of science that constitutes kind of that, that burgeoning regime. And now the hegemonic one that we're with today. And then on the other side, Another set of voices that were getting increasing attention during this time, such as the Paul Farabans and the Thomas Sazes and, and um, I hate to do it to him, but the Michel Foucaults, um, you know, who were taking this sort of culturalist postmodern approach to science that said, you know, scientific research is all about misunderstanding and, and classifying different populations according to, um, you know, the dictates of power. And that's, that's just it. There's no scientific understanding to really be had here other than exposing it for its, its falsity. You know, Foucault says, you know, in this, this famous line, knowledge is not for understanding, it's for cutting, which is like, on one hand, a kind of cool phrase. And on the other hand, a totally, totally misses the mark on the idea that as serious materialist, we should be using the tools and the concepts, you know, of scientific inquiry to understand exactly what is being misunderstood through these essentializing frameworks. And then also to to kind of take a positive, constructive approach to how we might better understand how to conduct science um, for, for the betterment of, you know, humanity, essentially. Hello, listeners, and pardon the interruption while I break the fourth wall, and thank you for listening to DPS today. I've already announced over the past couple of weeks that we will be returning to the long-form audio format, offering an A-side and a B-side, two distinct episodes each week. The B-side will be available as a full subscriber episode to our patrons. So if you want to support DPS and you want to get an additional sweet, sweet episode of DPS every week, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button additionally for 2020 i'm starting an outreach campaign because fucking mark zuckerberg and jack over there whatever his name is at uh twitter they have clamped down absolutely dismantled destroyed organic reach on those platforms as an example dps has a facebook page if you haven't liked that facebook page you probably should but if you do (laughs) you might not see all my posts uh, because I have about 15, 1,600 likes on that Facebook page, I believe. And when I make a post announcing a new episode or soliciting questions for a guest or making any, any other kind of announcement, 
Only about 100 of the people who have chosen to follow DPS are ever shown that post. Why, you ask? Well, it's all about advertising dollars. So what these two platforms have done is they have absolutely monopolized the social media space. They have forced everyone to come on to their platforms and they have clamped down on said platforms, forcing people to pay them money so that your posts are visible to the universe. It's fucking outrageous, and I hope that at some point we can make Facebook and Twitter a public utility. But until then, I'm going to need your help getting the word out about DPS. There is a growing democratic socialist movement as a result of the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020, and it's going to be getting much, much bigger as he sees success in the early primaries. So do me a favor and open up your podcast player app, whether it's iTunes, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, or whatever. Open up the app and look at this episode's show description. I've included two links in the show description, one for Twitter, one for Facebook. They are posts basically just announcing today's episode, the one you're listening to right now. I want you to do me a favor, and if you have a Twitter account or if you have a Facebook page, go ahead and click on those links right now and share them to your followers. That way we can give a big fuck you to Facebook and Twitter and in some small way overcome their blackout, their monopolistic stranglehold on the attention spans and the news consumption of people across the world. And as an added little incentive, if you share or tweet or retweet or whatever it's called, or the Facebook page or the tweet that I posted, and I see your name, I'll give you a shout out in next week's show. So if you want a shout out from me on next week's show, give it a share, give it a like, give it a follow, subscribe to the whatever the fuck. Do the thing, do all the things. We've got to find a way to overcome this media blackout, this stranglehold that these monopolies have over social media. It's outrageous. I used to just be able to put up a tweet about an amazing episode with an awesome guest that I would have, and it would get retweeted like 30 times. It would get over 100 likes. You'd have these massive platforms with 100,000 plus followers, these kind of lefty superstar accounts would retweet them and, and everybody would, the message was sent. Nowadays, there's a virtual blackout and we have to work together to overcome this thing. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Tweet, share, like, retweet, and enjoy the rest of the episode. I mean, I think this is really important for us to, to delve back into some of these debates in, in, the, in the 70s and going into the 80s. Because we're seeing a reemergence of of the kind of similar form of these debates with slightly different – with modified content, a debate that you sort of nod to towards in your piece but don't sort of expound upon because I presume most of the people in your audience and your niche are, are all too familiar with this debate. But I want you to spell this out for my audience and for myself. Geneticist David Reich, he made a lot of people angry <laughs> uh, about this time last year. Uh, and, and what we're seeing here is the reemergence of very similar debates uh, that are falling – they're running aground on similar kinds of you know uh, icebergs. I keep saying that on my show. You know, ships don't run aground on icebergs. You know, it's, it's, it's in the word aground. It has to be on the ground. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, I keep getting uh, hate mail. No, I'm kidding. Teasing, teasing DMs that ships don't run aground on icebergs. Um, people – in this world, in this field, are falling prey to similar kinds of 
problems, aren't they? When it comes to this kind of new understanding of human genetics and genomes and gene projects. And David Reich really just like shoved his finger right into that open sore, didn't he? Spell that debate out for our audience and, and for myself, because I got to be honest, I never really quite wrapped my head around that thing. Certainly, certainly. No, I don't worry. I suffered through it for the rest of you. Uh, <laughs> David Reich is this Harvard geneticist who runs one of the largest labs that does sort of population research, in particular does genetic research into kind of more ancient materials like bones, for instance, to understand the nature of populations uh, in a way that, you know, were previously unable to be studied, you know, lack the sort of um, more common biological material that we would study differences in those populations. But so you have David Reich and he's this Harvard geneticist. And he wrote this book in 2018 titled Who We Are and How We Got Here. And then he promotes it with a New York Times op-ed for which the punchline is essentially everyone who studies population genetics or a large variety of people who study population genetics in adjacent fields are, quote, denying the possibility of substantial biological differences among human populations and, you know, are, quote, anxious about any research into genetic differences among populations, end quote. So what Reich is essentially doing is trying to re-spark that debate that Lewontin kind of closed shut in the 70s about these distinctions on a biological level not existing among racial or ethnic categories. And Reich is saying, you know, we may have had the wrong categories of understanding to begin with. So, you know, he's, he's not resurrecting the sort of Francis Galton or Herbert Spencer categories of a you know, late 19th century, early 20th century race science and eugenics era. So, you know, he's not, not using those, those population categories um, with names that are, you know, not suitable for, um, you know, polite, polite podcast company. Uh, but, but instead... Oh, that was sweet. Thanks for calling me polite. <laughs> <laughs> That's a first. Yeah. So instead, where, where, what's he trying to do instead? Yeah. So instead, what he's saying is, you know, these differences on a genetic or biological level may exist among racial or ethnically defined populations, but just simply not the categories that we're used to. Um, and which, you know, to to me and a lot of other people who reacted poorly, you know, to 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 what he's arguing here in this book in this New York Times op-ed is that you're trying to resurrect race science, essentially, at its core, saying that populations are going to differ along these genetic lines um, in ways that warrant study and then warrant um, some sort of, you know, attending to in a social political realm. And David Reich is really fascinating in that he, he got a lot of flack for this, but he has some really strange allies that expose this, this strange kind of liberal pluralist tendency to adopt these sorts of understandings. So, for instance, he he cites Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, in the acknowledgments to this book as having read the entire manuscript before its before its its publication. And 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 Gates, you know, is someone who is also a, a huge fan of personal an ancestry testing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, more more on a, an understanding roots and then kind of a reparations front. But the same sort of thing goes in, into all of this, which is it reinscribes a sort of biological heritage to these populations by taking that blunt instrument of kind of genetic testing and genetic understanding to get at the root of, 
you know, what, what is at the root of different populations in society? And as soon as you start ans- asking that question, you know, it may sound hyperbolic, but I think it's true that you're, you're playing a race science game. I mean, the first thing needs to be said there is, for fuck's sake, Gates is a political scientist, black studies uh, scholar, okay? It's it's a – I mean, let's think about – we're talking about the social construction of medical science and the hegemonic kind of understandings of ourselves and our biology – our, quote, biology and our – and our, our, our essence and and how it relates to social and political and historical forces. I mean, look no further. It's a fucking political scientist giving a blurb to a book written by a geneticist. Now, what are, I mean, Gates is a very intelligent man. I don't mean to knock him. I don't agree with a lot of his, you know, stuff vis-a-vis, you know, whatever relation to, uh, we already covered it, reparations and uh, race, <laughs> weird progressive woke race realism, but um, he's a smart guy. Nonetheless, what is a political scientist doing? Giving a blurb, you know, an authoritative blurb to a book on genetics, that kind of, you know, that, that conflagration of of social and hard science, you know, producing our hegemonic realities, like it's no more stark. Look, look no further. That's interesting, isn't it? So the thing about Reich that was really interesting to me is I I started reading that piece and I didn't know Reich and I hadn't read his book and I don't know anything about this, but I I was a little bit, you know, I was initially seduced because he was playing this game. Like, look, people, I'm not a fucking Nazi. I don't like race science as much as the next guy. I'm super woke. I'm progressive. I voted for Obama. Okay. He didn't say all that, but he might as well have. He signaled. (laughs) He signaled appropriately, right? It's the New York fucking Times, people. Uh, You know, so he said, I'm not interested in any of that. But this is science. This is what we do. This is what science is. And science isn't perfect, but but it's still science. And we have to ever more closely approximate what we know to be the truth. And that's going to shift and change and alter, but we can't prevent, we can't, we can't possibly not categorize and classify because this is what's, this is what science does. And it's always this sort of, so it ended up being this like long, like, you know, um, Hagia, well, it was like, it was like a, yeah, it was, I have nothing nice to say about that. Uh, so what, what is your rebuttal to that sort of thing? You know, Reich is saying, sure, science is limited. Classifications are limited. But this is science, after all. What do you say to that? How do you do science without classifications? <laughs> well, I think one of the one of the important things to get straight here is that Reich is doing something that's a familiar kind of rhetorical strategy that he and many before him have kind of performed, which is to say, I am the objective scientist, and anyone who comes at me uh, is is a mere kind of you know, in an older term, a culturalist. Or kind of you know just just kind of a luddite or or anything like that. Um, when when our response should be, you know, it's actually anti scientific to be using sort of vulgar population categories and distinctions, kind of in the reckless manner that some of these these geneticists have done, in ways that kind of obfuscate social and political phenomena that cannot be captured by taking that sort of narrow what they, you know, kind of call in a suspicious way, race realist kind of lens. So, you know, circling back to someone like Luantin and that group that I was describing earlier, their kind of project was a dialectical biological one. And what that meant was, you know, simply to think more holistically about the terrain of that 
that a scientist is studying and to take a dialectical perspective on the agents and the causes of the biomedical problem. So how a population, for instance, is, is you know, being shaped by and then shaping their environment in ways that we're not going to understand is something that's going on just by purely kind of carving them up at time X and saying, okay, here are all these distinctions and here are the sorts of things that we can explain from making those vulgarly carved up distinctions. I think the dialectical biological approach is one that exercises quite a bit more nuance in their sort of scientific investigations. And I just kind of want to clarify because I think, you know, when I first encountered the idea of dialectical biology, I thought it sounded very silly. Uh, as a Marxist, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to it, but I know it doesn't strike people uh, immediately as cutting edge scientific work. But what was, you know, so clarifying to me in, in reading through these dialectical biologists is taking, you know, one of their examples is understanding tuberculosis and the spread of tuberculosis. And the example that they put forward there is to say it's just as true to say that this particular bacteria is the cause of tuberculosis is to say also that the conditions of unregulated 19th century competitive capitalism um, in a terrain of weak labor unions and the state is what caused the spread of tuberculosis. And so it's a sort of investigation into an epidemiological phenomena that one needs to understand both the biological spread of some disease um, but but to not just take it in its biological or molecular form, but you have to take a rich kind of um, historically sophisticated and dynamic approach to understanding what exactly happened there and how to prevent it, rather than just taking these sorts of uh, vulgar carved up snapshots and saying, well, that's how you understand human society um, and, you know, the inequalities that it generates. If anybody thinks that that sort of dialectical biology, uh, biology sort of sounds clownish or ridiculous, let's let's look at the flip side. What's the alternative to looking at the so, sort of social, political, and historical uh, aspects of epidemiology? Well, the alternative is to do what the mainstream does, the mainstream scientific community does, which is to create these sort of more sort of reified, ridiculous categories and then ascribe certain kinds of you know genetic or biological <laughs> Uh, uh, aspects or features or, or predispositions to them. So one way to approach this in and, and a slightly kind of buffoonish way that no serious scientist I hope would do would say, well, there must have been something genetically or biologically about the white working class in, you know, in, in Britain at the time of the spread of tuberculosis that made them predisposed to uh, you know, falling prey to that virus or what have you. And I'm not sure if anyone does say that. But you see these same kinds of reifications like the white working class, you know, re re rearing their ugly heads as a, as a workaround such that these, you know, uh, hyper classificatory, hyper identitarian types of, of folks or, or people who are just kind of under the sway of that hegemonic understanding of social phenomenon. It's, it's really their, their, their last gasp of social and political understanding given the limitations of, of their framework, isn't it? Certainly, certainly. And I think um, a, a really good example to see what goes horribly wrong when you take this more vulgar approach in more contemporary research is you look to something that like bioethics and legal scholar Dorothy Roberts has studied, which is racialized understandings of the prevalence of chronic kidney disease. 
And what she found in her research is that a lot of the um, you know, researchers and clinicians who are studying and treating chronic kidney disease in African-American populations was that they started from a specious observation that African-Americans tend to have more muscle mass than those of other races. And then that evidence-based care would have to flow from that assumption, which would mean you know, different treatment levels and, and you know, different treatment um, regimens for one racially defined population than others. And you know, surprise, surprise, what we learned in the last decade or so, and particularly through Roberts's research and others, is that that was basically just a baseless racist understanding of the phenomena that was going on, and it resulted in a lot of uh, negative effects for patient care. And now we're at the point where the Chronic Kidney Disease Epidemiology Collaboration Group now cautions researchers to not use those race-based testing methods and instead to use a more general one. And so we went through this whole saga of producing papers, miscategorizing populations and mistreating, most importantly, mistreating populations based on these racialist assumptions of how we should go about delivering healthcare. So it really truly is a story, a a kind of intertwined story of, you know, the path to hell is, is paid with good intentions mixed up there with different sort of profit incentives and other sorts of institutional incentives that get wrapped up in there that produce these sort of misunderstandings and mistreatment problems. And so we're really now at the heart of the kind of uh, anti-disparitarian position that I want to lay down, uh, not only in this episode, but in, in all of the episodes that are coming up in part two of this series, because it's the hardest thing to capture. Because people will say, uh, so my, my, you know, it seems, I, I look, I haven't studied chronic kidney disease. I don't think that'll shock you or anybody else. I don't know the causes of it. I don't know anything. But I do, you know, I do know that, you know, there's claims about African-Americans being more predisposed to heart disease and other things like this that, you know, at bottom can be traced to the socioeconomic conditions faced by, you know, larger percentages of African-Americans in, in this country. And so an anti-disparitarian approach wants to get to the heart of this and look at the class dimensions that actually cause these problems in the first place because they cannot because they cannot be reduced to any other fucking dimension. They can't be. Uh, any other explanation other than the class-based explanation for why African Americans have heart disease at higher rates allegedly than other, you know, quote races, these are all constructions people. <laughs> these things don't really exist. Uh, you know, no other explanation holds water. A genetic explanation, bunk, right? Garbage. Uh, A a race realist explanation of any other kind, obviously inadmissible and garbage from any progressive lens or even just any humanistic lens. How else are you going to explain that, uh, you know, larger percentage of African-Americans suffer from things like food deserts and inadequate health care? other than looking at the class dimensions of race. And yet people want to double down on the racial dimension. It's like uh, they, they just can't help themselves. So talk me off this ledge. How do you explain that kind of disparitarian argument to people who acknowledge the class aspect but want to keep returning nonetheless to, to a, quote, racial causative narrative when it comes to dis- disparities? Well, I think it's I think it's an opportunity for us to clarify what is a broader political intervention that we need to make and continue to make, which is to say that a rigorous class analysis is one that explains the poli- you know the political and social consequences of oppression as part of 
broader class dynamics. And so to kind of break that down, what that means is that you can, of course, of course, recognize that there are biases in medical facilities and uh, prejudice among healthcare providers that do cause you know, some sort of racialized patterns of inequality in and in particular in, in care. But, and this is something that everyone, um, you know, from these sort of anti-disparitarian Marxist crowds to the actual, um, you know, scientists and clinicians writing in American Medical Association journals of ethics argue recently, is that even taking that sort of approach is aligning the structural causes of health inequality. They say this directs attention to bias and prejudice where they still exist. But it's relatively a surface level conversation uh, rather than one that attends to those broader structural kind of determinants of you know, those structural social determinants of inequality. And we can only understand those by taking into account things like class, geography and other kind of relevant indicators that get more at the root of what is driving healthcare inequalities and, and related inequalities um, in this society. So, so let me let me let me test you on this then. So one of the one of the things that's often thrown around and this is very real. It's uh, allegedly so sociologically documented that say, for example, the pain of of black women in particular is not taken seriously. There seem to be more you know fucking horribly horrendously racist kind of caricatures, but they're seen by many health providers to be more uh, a sturdy and less um, you know less uh, needing of sort of uh, sort of certain kind of like. Uh, the word uh, palliative care is right. Is that right? Sort of easing their pain. So there've been many cases where, you know, women of color have died on the floor in agony in emergency rooms across the country because, you know, they were deemed their pain was not deemed to be legitimate or maybe they were, you know, putting on a show because you know how they do, you know, that these kind of horribly horrendously racist assumptions about various gender and, and racial categories that are very, very real. I've witnessed them. I've seen it. We've all seen it. And we know that they're true. Um, so what, how does, how, do, how does a, a statistic like that fall into the kind of class-based, uh, you know, uh, more macro understanding that you're trying to present uh, there previously? Sure. I think that this is something that we must recognize as a real uh, problem in in providing health care mm-hmm. and kind of a persistent mode of inequality that needs addressed. But I think that the next step from acknowledging the reality of a, of a sociological phenomena like that is to then ask the question, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to address inequalities like that and broader ones in healthcare? Ooh, I got an idea. Racial sensitivity training. Exactly. Adam. How about that one? Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why um, not? We're being tongue in cheek for those who are missing this. Uh, why not? Why? Why? So that, but that is really the knee jerk kind of way of framing this, right? Well, obviously, if nurses are racist and they don't take the pain of black women seriously, well, they need to learn about racial sensitivity and they need to undo, uh, stamp out these racist ideas that they have in their head. Therefore, the liberal kind of anti-racist says, "Aha, uh, racial sensitivity training. They need to be more woke. They need to go to a Tim Wise conference." Tell us why that doesn't work and what needs to happen instead. <laughs> well, the, the, the problem really is, is it's, I think what, what gets really misunderstood here is it's really not an either or. What the problem is, is that we take the racial sensitivity training 
uh, as a sort of um, the end-all be-all of reform. And that's what the disparitarian crowd wants to do. They're, you know, Sharp runs this nonprofit, the person who I start the essay with, and she runs this nonprofit outfit, and there are many others like it. And they take these disparity studies, like the one that you just mentioned, and their solution is always uh, to put programs in place for the advancement of people from these marginalized backgrounds into those positions where they will be the ones providing care. So, for example, diversifying um, you know, the, the physician population, for instance. Now, the problem with that is that it's fundamentally uh, a solution that really doesn't get at any of the sort of structural features that are at the root of the inequalities more broadly, and particularly the ones that the racial disparity studies find again and again um, when they divorce kind of race and class from one another um, in that vulgar way we were talking about before. But what they do show you know, is, is that the inequalities are much deeper. They are much more persistent and they're much more rooted in some sort of structural phenomena than anything that a racial sensitivity program could ever hope to address. And so what we can do from our side here politically in making these arguments is to acknowledge the persistence of a pattern uh, of racialized inequality in that instance, but then to say, this is something that must be addressed, but is by no means um, the most important um, thing on the agenda in, in terms of ameliorating racial disparities in healthcare. I think the way that yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, it's just that that's the way that you're going. That's the way that you're going to get rid of it. And it's like those studies I mentioned before that show that when you take populations defined by race, that we know there to exist sort of disparities um, in kind of like prevalence of prostate cancer or breast cancer, for example. And when you provide you know those different racialized populations. Uh, and white ones, the same kind of access to affordable or free health care, they are going to consistently you know, dissolve those sort of disparities. And so that really is how we provide care um, that both reckons with the uh, broader inequalities that can't be understood by racial measurements, but also the ones that can be. This brings to mind, I can't help but to think through, uh, you know, one of the people who who sort of ushered me into this kind of anti-centralist framework and shook me free of my, you know, liberal notions of race realism, if you will, if I, if I may say somewhat hyperbolically, but there's a lot of truth to that, uh, is uh, Barbara Jean Fields. You know, Barbara Fields, uh, Jean Fields wrote a sort of a updated collection of her work called Racecraft. That came, I think that came out in 2011, 2012, but Bought a, snatched up a copy right away. I'd been reading her essays for a little while at that point. And uh, she opens the book, maybe the introduction, if I'm not mistaken, talking about how she had an eye disorder, an eye problem. And it went on untreated and all of the treatments and things they tried to, to do, uh, you know, failed. And it, uh, ultimately, um, they found a cause to her problem, but her previous clinicians hadn't looked for that cause because it's not something that is supposed to have happened to uh, women of color. So they didn't go looking for it. And this was kind of a, a wake-up call for her and, and to, to think through the implications of this. And and, and from a non-scientist, I mean, she's an historian, of course, but uh, she certainly delves into some of this stuff. And, and that, that led her to, to use this term racecraft. How does the notion of racecraft 
as a kind of ob- obfuscatory, you know, way of understanding race and classifications figure into your research? Yeah, so I'm also very high on on Barbara Field's work in you know, the Racecraft book and and the essays that came, you know, before in her career were, have been very instructive for how I understand the operations of race ideology. And I think what's key there is is the point that that Barbara and Karen Fields are trying to make is that race is an ideology. And that's important because I was talking a lot about the difference between bias and structure before. And what I want to make clear here is that when I talk about structure, I don't mean something like, you know, structural racism or some other kind of neologism uh, of our contemporary moment that conflates the ideological and the material drivers of some pattern of inequality. The racial ideologies at play here are the effects of these broader engines of inequality. Like I was arguing before, you know, the, the, this kind of, um, these conditions of access uh, and availability of healthcare. And it also points to, um, you know, the, the example that Barbara Field starts the book off with, uh, which is to show you what kind of problems taking an overtly, you know, racial or ethnic lens in a more egalitarian minded way uh, can get you in terms of patient care. You can be looking like in that kidney example um, for the wrong thing. You cannot know to look for the right thing because you've made your distinctions on the basis of race too fine and sharp instead of accounting um, for a diversity of conditions that can, can happen in a diversity of populations. So let's wind up the conversation here by getting into the more kind of practical political imports of some of these conversations. Um, there are immense institutional structures in place that, you know, that feed this kind of disparitarian approach, uh, both in academia and, uh, and socially and politically and, and elsewhere. Um, and yet Bernie Sanders, obviously, as I mentioned, at the opening of the show and everybody will know this. This isn't news. This is that he's surging in the polls. Uh, I don't know how this is going to shake out. Hopefully this episode will be evergreen. People will be listening to it for many years to come, I suspect. So, I, you know, we don't want to make any prediction in either direction. Uh, but but it's needless to say, programs like single payer healthcare are are on the rise. And there's a there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm around these kind of more universalist class based approaches to to uh, dealing with the kinds of things that disparity arguments uh, once dealt with from more kind of, uh, you know, race realist or gender realist or whatever types of frameworks. And yet the, the kind of hegemonic approach to disparitarian arguments is such that, as you write in your piece, that even the George W. Bush administration was pushing these kind of woke classificatory structures in the scientific community. Uh, talk to us about that. Yeah. So this is what's so fascinating is that, you know, the disparitarian lens you might think is a liberal one and one in which conservative political forces and presidential administrations uh, may have been opposed to. But what you really see is that there's a real neoliberal bipartisan consensus on uh, racial disparities being kind of uh, one of, if not the most important healthcare crisis to resolve. And so all the way back to the Bill Clinton administration in, in his second term, he made it a goal of his Department of Health and Human Services to reduce racial disparities. And this is notably after shifting further away from universal health care reform in the 90s. 
And so then, you know, when George W. Bush comes to power, he recommits to the Clinton goal to end racial disparities in health care kind of hilariously by 2010. And then later, Obama, too, made disparity a major feature of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and what's kind of ironic there is that the, the racial disparities that appear to be tackled most effectively have been done so uh, in states that have accepted the Medicaid expansion. Or in other words, the only feature of the ACA um, that is not so heavily marketed, market-based uh, and instead the one that most closely approximates a universal public goods program. And we have recent data that just came out, I believe, last week um, in kind of the, the two states where I hang out, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, that uh, the study shows that, um, you know, those states accepting of Medicaid expansion money have done wonders in terms of closing some of these racial disparity gaps, as well as um, ameliorating some um, broader, uh, more absolute conditions of healthcare inequality. But what this all shows is that left and right wing neoliberals have substituted disparity for an indicator of inequality in such a way that we can see as kind of a sharp distinction to the only candidate running for president of the United States, Bernie Sanders's uh, approach to Medicare for all. And so Medicare for all being a program that will not only address um, some of those gaps, as we've seen, um, you know, more uh, broad based programs can do, um, but instead fo- will will kind of address um, the kind of embarrassing, devastating, tragic nature, truly, uh, of of persistent absolute inequalities uh, in U.S. healthcare. Right. I mean, this disparate, this hegemonic disparitarian approach to inequality and solutions thereof. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's the only explanation for how it is that these universal programs, which so disproportionately impact, you know, people of color and very suppressed minority groups. And the Bernie coalition, which is, you know, brought, you know, it's it's obvious at this point that Bernie has the most diverse coalition, despite what anybody says. But that disparitarian kind of approach is the only thing that grounds the 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 smears on Bernie's base, right, for being sort of full of white Bernie bros, right? Because obviously, if you if you reject the kind of narrow disparitarian framework of of you know healthcare delivery in favor of a universalist approach it must be because you just fucking love white people so much that's the only explanation right uh if 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 you take a disparitarian lens there 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 can't possibly be any other way of framing it and so it's i think it's really instructive and important to see that this is just as you know dominant prevalent in the George W Bush administrations as it was in the Obama administrations because going forward socialists are going to have to contend with this um, really seriously. It's going to be an anti-socialist, anti-universal talking point uh, that we're going to have to deal with uh, very seriously. Um, so in closing, I, I want to talk about – I want to bring together kind of pragmatic political imperatives along with the kind of more sort of like niche you know, social scientific philosophy of science kind of imports here as well. You write that in your piece, in your kind of grand, uh, grand finale here. I encourage people to read this final paragraph for sure. You're right. The more urgent immediate task is to expose these supposedly enlightened and egalitarian reforms to biomedical research and public policy for what they are. An internally contradictory, politically insufficient, scientifically compromised, and ultimately reactionary set of discourses and policies that in the process of displacing one reified worldview, replace it with another. 
The result is a schema that rationalizes a new arrangement of social relations, one that constitutes a fairly superficial degree of progress considering the expanding absolute as well as intergroup inequality with which its proponents often purport to be concerned. And then finally, this latest iteration of racial aggregation and its associated disparitarian outlook are inadequately positioned to reckon with a regime in which the social determinants of health and life chances are conditioned by one's position in a staggeringly unequal political economy of which highly abstract, highly abstracted measures of racial disparity cannot begin to give us a full picture. So that is a really excellent summation of the kind of political import of this, you know, this, this scholarly, uh, this scholarly approach. Um, expound on that for, for our audience as a sort of grand finale here. Sure, sure. So I think what is at the heart of this passage is the fact that, look, it would be great to live in a world in which these racial disparities were reckoned with. If I was given two options, option A being the current train of inequality defined by these racial disparities, and B being one in which everything remained the same except for we would have made sufficient progressive headway on dealing with racial disparities, then I would always choose option B. But I think that those are options that are not only giving us kind of an inadequate vision of the sort of egalitarian future that we should be striving for, but they are also ones in which we don't actually have these options. And to flesh that out a little bit more, what I mean by that is that the way that you are going to deal with these persistent racial disparities in the allocation of healthcare and in the distribution of resources in this society is going to be through promoting universal public goods programs like Medicare for All, like the Bernie Sanders platform on housing equality and criminal justice reform uh, and education and the whole lot of it, all of these sort of universal public goods programs. Because those are going to be the political solution to the underlying drivers of inequality that are producing both the sort of racial disparity patterns of inequality and also the broader kind of class-based inequality of which that is a constitutive part. And anything other than that is going to be this sort of half-measure neoliberal in terms of that really the outcomes are going to be putting a select few minority pop, uh, representatives of minority populations in different positions of power, in different positions within the healthcare industry, and are not going to be able to even begin to address the sort of patterns of racial disparity to which they purport to be concerned. And I do think that they, you know, many of the people who push this sort of disparitarian reform lens are not the cynics who are getting paid. Those people exist, and they're the ones like Sharp who run these nonprofits. Um, and I, I think that we need to be clear that those people are indeed class enemies. But there are plenty of people who push and who are kind of enthralled with this disparitarian perspective because it has a lot of kind of progressive tones to it. But it is unfortunately one that is entirely inadequate in terms of both understanding uh, and creating a sort of multiracial working class political solution to what are ultimately political social problems. Very well said. I think that many of us, myself for sure, like I said, I, I had my own sort of liberal uh, disparitarian kind of uh, moment wherein I was coming from a good place, I think. 
And I snapped out of it and many other people can snap out of it too. I suspect that almost everyone in my audience at some point snapped out of it. So I think that like going forward, especially pushing this anti-essentialism series part two, I think that we're in a moment right now where, where the, 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 the sort of inertia is on our side. And we're in a moment where uh, historical events are outpacing consciousness and the kind of institutional and intellectual apparatus that, that, you know, preexisted this movement. And um, that shouldn't come as a surprise to any Marxist that history has a way of, of uh, heavily modifying and producing large, uh, you know, transformations in, in collective consciousness. And we're in one of those moments right now. And, uh, and I, I say this with being very serious about this. I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're winning. I mean, the, to, uh, maybe I'll just go off here and go out here, I should say, with uh, just some thoughts, some general kind of social commentary about the state of the political terrain we're in right now. And I, mean, I think it's important to do this. In 2017, uh, I was shouting into a void about anti-essentialism, or so it felt. Uh, at where we stand in 2020, uh, it seems like a lot of this stuff is just being sort of broadly understood and, and, and organically received by the population because they have seen the failures of the disparitarian approach. They see the way that this kind of liberal hegemonic understanding of, of quote, race versus class or what have you are, are, are just utter failures and completely, you know, uh, they just don't describe the world as people experience it. So let's go out on this. Give me just what, what do you think about the, the where are we standing today? Are we about to see some real serious breakthrough progress on this? Are, are we are you going to come up as a scholar, as an activist? Are we going to grow old in a world that is far less realist when it comes to our categorizations? I got to say that I'm incredibly hopeful. And it's part of what you mentioned was, you know, when I started doing my political and my academic work, it was in the years before Bernie Sanders' first run for presidential office. And that was a wasteland um, in terms of being able to talk about anti-essentialism and to make these sorts of arguments for a universal public goods class-based program uh, to attend all these sorts of inequalities. That was something, you know, it was a project um, that made a lot of us pursuing it feel kind of alone, feel kind of crazy, and, you know, um, kind of put down for being um, not moral in our approach to political and academic understanding. But thank God for Bernie Sanders and thank God for, um, you know, the popularization of a universal public goods program. You know, the, the future is bright in terms of we have a real moment to seize here in terms of electing Bernie Sanders, electing legislature legislators like him. Um, and I think most importantly, building the kind of, you know, labor left organizations around him to really push for things like Medicare for all, and then to push for the next fight and the next fight and the next fight to decommodify public goods. And that's going to be the program that's going to erode the power of these sort of mystifications, because that's what the disparities lens is. It's a mode of understanding political society and inequalities um, that is class-skewed by its nature and has, therefore, uh, class-skewed ramifications. And the more we win on a class-based agenda, the less power that that's going to hold over both our 
material reality in terms of who is getting the grants, who is being funded for what particular types of research, um, what's selling on the market, um, what can be sold on the market in those terms, and then what flows downstream from that, which is kind of the political imagination um, that it leaves us with. And so, yeah, I, I think that the, the future is as bright as, as you can will it, which means that we all have our role to play. Um, and our role is honestly less writing um, kind of uh, papers that you know, are going to, to hang out in dusty libraries, although that's part of it, but really is getting you know, boots on the grounds for a public goods program in whatever ways that we can imagine doing that. All right. Joanna West, thank you for uh, ruining the anti-essentialism series part two. I have to cancel it now because you've covered everything and we don't have anything else to talk about. So. <laughs> um, no, that happy was really to, great. Happy to create problems for you. Yeah, you're, you're creating a lot of problems. That was so comprehensive and so succinct that I don't know how we're going to top it. But you know what? We're going to try. The anti-essentialism series is going to plow on in the coming weeks. Uh, this was a really excellent way to kick it off. Um, I learned a lot, and it was really great delving into this literature. People should check out this article. It is available on nonsite.org. It is an academic and political sort of joint project. Uh, it is embodying and envisioning that kind of uh, collaboration between intellectual and political grounded pursuits that you just uh, displayed. It's doing that in a very exemplary way. People should check out and support Nonsite as just a little quick plug. Joanna West is a postdoctoral fellow and lecturer at Princeton. Everybody check out that article, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Adam.